Welcome to the Jam Broberg Show, where we expose the truth about child sexual abuse, rape, assault, and trauma. Everything you hear on this show is for informational and educational purposes only. We do not dispense therapy or give legal advice. This show is not for children. I'm Jam Broberg. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. So one of the things that I've been talking about are the six stages of of grooming and manipulation. And I was able to read a lot of this on Oprah.com. Uh, Dr. Michael Wellner talks about the six stages of grooming. And we've talked already about the first stage, which is targeting, you know, your victim. You have to find the, the perfect target um, that we We've discussed um, in some detail how to pick a target, someone that might be vulnerable, someone that has a need, and all of these are are pieces of the grooming stages. The second thing that we've already talked about is gaining the victim's trust. We talk about the perpetrator has to gain trust in order to be able to have access into the world of that child, and sometimes they do that not only by gaining the victim's trust, the child's trust, or the teenager's trust, but also the trust of parents and people around the um, the intended victim. All right, so now we're going to go into the third stage of grooming and talk a little bit more in detail about how, how they um, fulfill a need. This is filling a need and playing a role in the child's life that is the third stage. So when you can fulfill a need, then all of a sudden that builds trust in and of itself. So a perpetrator may take on um, a special role in that child's life. Um, Birchtold, for example, being so helpful, he knew a need that my mom had and said, hey, I know that Bob goes to work early I got to take my boys down to the same grade school as the girls go to. I'll just pick up I'll just pick up the girls on my way down. He lived just a block, just a block and a half up the the way. And so I'll just go ahead and pick them up and then you don't have to run the girls to school. And sometimes we would walk on nice days, but you know, it's cold in Idaho, so that was a nice thing that he offered to do. So he filled a need in my mom's world in order to gain special access. And would get us all in the car. And the first thing he would say is, okay, Broberks, it's going to be a great day. He'd do that at our door as he'd open the back door. And we'd all come running. We'd hear his voice, you know, come running with our backpacks and our stuff, our school supplies and our and our homemade lunch that mom had made for each of us. And um, go pile in his car. It's going to be a great day. And then in the car, he would further that special relationship with all of us. And we would listen to fun songs. He had one of those, what was it called? An eight-track tape player in the car. It was like those bigger tape things. <laughs> and we listened to all kinds of music. And he would try to find things that he thought we would know and that we could all sing together. And then he often would say, okay, besides your parents, who do you love most? And we'd all say, you know, B, Brother B. We'd, you know, we'd go through the thing and, and we'd pile out of the car at Washington elementary school and off we'd go to school 
So when I look back on that, I'm like, oh, well, that was just the beginning of him creating a special role in my life. Um, And as they manipulate that relationship so that that one person is the only one that understands how special that relationship is, he would do other things when I was, you know, alone, you know, in just an opportunity. Oh, now she's by herself. Let me see if I can fulfill the need in the way that Jan is special, that she is a person that has special talents. And I'm going to say things like, I, I know somebody in Hollywood that, um, you know, that girl that just did that, you know, movie, Tatum O'Neill with Ryan O'Neill, and we had just watched that movie, you know, or something. And he would say, I, I know, I know the director of that. And I'm going to someday, I'm going to talk to him about getting you an audition. So he would make you feel special that he saw your special talents. He would come to every play with his whole family that I was ever in. So um, some of the shows that, that he saw me in were like Oliver, and I played Oliver. I had my short shag, you know, little pixie kind of haircut, and I got the leading role as Oliver. And I think I said this somewhere in another podcast episode, but he literally, from his family, from him and his family, sent a beautiful bouquet of flowers, and it was on the dressing room table um, for Oliver. Oh, my dad was so mad. Anyway, that was, I think, because that that show happened about the summer, the next summer is when I was, when he took me for the first time, the first time, or the following fall. I mean, not summer. The musical was in the summer, and it was that fall that uh, he kidnapped me, but my dad was pulling away by that point. Boy, to me, it just felt like I was the most important special person, you know, in the world. And he understood what I loved and what I what I wanted, and he knew how to pray upon that. He could fill that need. Um, one of the other things about making me feel special was when I was, you know, kidnapped and in, in the back of the motorhome, and the voices said that I had a, a a very important mission, you know, that I was to save an an entire dying planet. And just the idea that I had a very important purpose and I was going to play a role in this very special mission made me feel special. Even though it was the doorway into all of the abuse, I also had this very heightened sense of, I I have always been that kind of a, uh, as a young girl, I was always the person who could see if someone was being made fun of or being bullied. Um, There was a girl in our grade school um, who walked on crutches because she was crippled. And that's what, you know, the kids would make fun of her. And they had little rhymes about that and about her condition. And, And I would, you know, and I was only a couple years older. I think I was a second grader and she was in kindergarten or first grade. Maybe I was two years older, might've been third grade. And I would be the one that would run up to those, you know, fifth or sixth grade boys that were, you know, chanting this thing and throwing little pebbles and rocks and, you know, yell at them. And I was like, you know, 50 pounds or something. I was tiny. But I was just, I was always, that came with me. That was part of who I was since I was born. Like, I'm going to defend the underdog, which is something that I think I got from my, my mother and my father. They were always taking in people that maybe didn't have other friends or had special, 
you know, some special needs. And we had several of those that were throughout our entire life, even into adulthood, um, that, you know, we also were friends with them and, and their struggles throughout life. Um, so I think he knew that about me, that I had a heightened sense of like, I'm going to stand up for the, you know, the little person or the person who's being hurt or harmed or who's in trouble. And so making me have this special mission was another way to show that I had a special purpose. And that resonated with me, that to save a dying planet made me very important and that I had to do these things because it was something beyond just myself. Hey, everybody. I just, I just had to take a minute because I want to talk a little bit about our online community, Thrivivors. Um, I always had the feeling it would be really cool and that it would be helpful, but I had no idea how amazing it is to be in a safe space with fellow survivors where you feel like you can talk about anything without any judgment, where you can have, you know, your worst day and need to express things about a big disappointment, or you have a breakthrough day and something that just finally made sense to you on your healing journey and you're able to go forward. I'm more than thrilled with what the members at Thriveivors are already talking about and what they're saying and they're sharing their stories and it truly is changing their lives and changing my life. I can't believe how much I've been missing by actually not having a group of fellow survivors in my path. There's so much to be learned on the journey from each other and from that support where you're completely safe. I hope that you'll come over and join us and just know that we have survivor stories that we share every week. We also have amazing experts like social workers, therapists, uh, memory experts, people who have created programs for healing because they were survivors too. And now they've gone down that path and that journey. And now they're sharing what they know with all of us. And it just becomes this wonderful, amazing um, experience. And I really want to encourage you to come and join us. And we'll never charge more than a dollar a day for your own health and healing. I think that's pretty reasonable. That'll never change. And if you can't afford a dollar a day, tell us what you can afford. We want all survivors to have a safe place to begin their healing journey and to be supported on that journey. So please just come. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to hear your story. So please go to our link in the show notes and find us at Thriveivors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I cannot adequately explain to you guys how vitally important therapy has been for me throughout my life. At times, it has been what keeps the 10% of my life, which is filled with challenges and trauma, from festering, becoming 20% or 30% or 50% and so on. Therapy has literally saved my life. It commits you to your own mental health. And it has a physical impact on you as well. So when your mental health is good, your bodily health improves. I'm telling you that at BetterHelp, you have an opportunity to do the easiest pathway to a therapist. You can chat with them. You can have a video session. You can text your therapist. It's immediate. You don't have to drive anywhere. 
and they will match you with a licensed professional. And if that doesn't work out, it doesn't feel like a fit to you, you can change it anytime for no additional charge. It's more affordable than traditional therapy, and it's easier than traditional therapy. When you feel better mentally because you've been seeing a therapist like I have throughout my life, you'll know why you have committed that time, that money, that space. So hopefully you'll go to BetterHelp, use our link, betterhelp.com forward slash my name, J-A-N, and that will help out our show. It will help you. Plus, if you sign up from our link, you get 10% off your first month. I'm telling you, it's so much more affordable than traditional therapy. And it's also so much more immediate because you can do it from the palm of your hand. I know that for a fact. I've used them myself. Perpetrators, they can exploit a young person's empathy. They can convince a young person that, you know, he or she is the only one who understands them. Um, Another reinforcement of that is when he would tell my parents that he had depression and that he was seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist, somebody, a therapist. I don't even think they called them that counselor. I don't know what the terminology in the 70s was, but it was new. You know, it was new to have that kind of a doctor, you know, to go see a doctor about depression and what exactly is depression. And all of those things were new terms anyway. And he said, I've been seeing this really um, amazing counselor in Beverly Hills. You know, I have to go there to find somebody really, really good at dealing with my depression. And he's given me these tapes, cassette tapes. Now we have cassette tapes. First, it was those eight-track tapes, and then cassette tapes came, came around about this time. And, um, and he said, I just need to, um, I'm supposed to listen to these tapes by, by a, okay, how to explain this is really difficult, but he would basically say, my sister and my aunt are part of my depression story. And he would tell my mom different things than he would tell my dad about what happened with his aunt and then how he was trying to protect his little sister. And so the depression part, as he inserted various stories to different people, kind of all around the same thing, but he'd say the right thing to dad and the right thing to mom and a different thing, you know, to me. But he basically said, I need to lay by a child about the the age that I was when I really knew that I was having a problem with depression. So he said, you know, I felt like my abuse or he didn't ever, I don't even think he used the word abuse. The things that happened with my aunt happened when I was really young and it was about age eight, nine, 10 that I started to have these feelings of this terrible depression. And because it was a woman, um, I need to lay by a female around the age that I was. So I was about that right age. I was 10 or 11 at this time. And so with the door open, on top of the covers, he would lay down. I was asleep. I don't even, I don't even remember him being there. But he would lay down on top of the covers on the, to the side of me on my little bed. And he would put these big earphones on. And he would listen to these tapes and they lasted 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes um, long, no longer than that. And then he'd be done. That was his 
part of his therapy. And um, he'd go back upstairs and talk to mom and dad for a few minutes. And then, you know, he'd leave and go home. So I look back on that and so many people who've lost their minds over that story. I'm like, it's interesting because, you know, my mom was somebody who would do, you know, and put away clothes and, and iron and do laundry, you know, old school. And so she'd be in and out of my room, you know, opening the drawer, putting some laundry away in my room while he was laying there on the bed. And dad would be home, you know, either upstairs reading the paper, he might be downstairs, um, you know, maybe, you know, talking to mom while she was, you know, doing her last of her housekeeping work. And sometimes dad would help, you know, he was, um, he was that kind of a husband that he would help and, and also, you know, fold clothes or put things away. You know, not as much as, you know, my mom did, but it wasn't that the door was closed. They could see it. It was, it was hiding in plain sight, so to speak, you know, that he was doing all of these things to exude empathy and sympathy and, you know, wrangling my parents into his whole um, story of his own things. That reinforcement that he would basically give to them was that, see, I'm just laying here listening to this tape and it's helping me with my depression. Nothing's happening. And so I find the manipulation of someone like this and the slow, steady burn of just that constant one little thing here, one little thing there is going to add up to a ton of trust so that nobody sees what's coming. Um, so when they reinforce the needs of the child or the young person, you know, by using their mental illness or whatever, um, it's, it's really hard to tell that you're being manipulated because, you know, you talk about, you know, you talk about how is it working? Are you doing okay? I mean, it's not just, oh, hey, I want to lay by your daughter and listen to some tapes because they're going to help me with my depression. It's, it's them being involved in, in his angst, in his problems. And he did that so well. And he did it a lot of times separately so that they each felt a special kind of relationship developing. And that is just such a tactic. And then also with me, separating me from the other kids, finding the opportunity to do that so that he could talk about things that were important and special to me. So um, one time... He actually staged an entire scene where, where he had been injured um, in order to gain some sympathy and some concern. Um, so someone can, you know, he staged something that, that we look back on now and go, oh my gosh, that was just him staging that he was hurt. And, um, and he would even do that with, he would often use other members of his own family, like, like talking about one of his children who was having a problem with my mom or with my dad, depending on who might feel the most empathy towards that child. You know, it's just so sly and so subtle. And so he's, you know, spilling his heart about, you know, his relationship with his wife to my dad and then saying, you know, do you think that Marianne could help her, you know, dress like this or, you know, be more attractive, like, apply makeup like like your wife does or I mean he would find a way to make a compliment inside of a, a ask and then my dad's the one saying to my mom you know he's just really 
thinking that maybe you could teach her some of your style. You know, I mean, it's a compliment to my my dad about my mom and a compliment to my mom trying to get something out of them that would connect them even further into his spider web. So a person may, you know, act like your best friend. They may look like someone you can confide in, that you can tell your secrets to, um, you know, things that that maybe your own parents may not understand. And, and yet the whole time it was grooming and manipulation. It was, it was filling needs, you know, filling a need inside of that child. You know, sometimes approaching a child and all you have to say is, oh, I know your parents don't understand your, how amazing you are as an actress and that you want to go be in movies and, and be on TV. I mean, you could be you could be Jan Brady in the Brady Bunch. I mean, your name is Jan and you could have been her, you know, or the shows that we're watching on TV at that very moment. Or you could have been, you know, one of the Partridge family kids that you sing and you can act. You could have been one of those kids on the Partridge family. These are shows we're watching every day, religiously. We watch the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family and I Dream of Jeannie. And you you start to see where where he can insert a compliment or play into your needs in a way that maybe your parents don't understand. And so I think as you start to see through these these stages of grooming, as you start to see the tactics that come through, you'll be able to really maybe notice something that you wouldn't have noticed before. So that is really summing up this third stage of grooming through some of my own personal experiences, how they fill a need, how they make you feel special, and how they find a need and help fill that need. So for me to be, you know, uh, a warrior for others that were being hurt, like at school, in grade school, he knew that about me. He knew those stories because he'd ask, what happened at school today or yesterday when he was driving us to school. And I just, I just think if we could see past the normal amount of someone, you know, being interested in your child and what is not normal. However, a lot of it was out of sight. My parents wouldn't have seen a lot of these times when he was filling that need or that interest and saying, I can help you with that, you know. Um, so they're very tricky. It's very tricky. But as we talk more about this, I think we'll become better educated and be able to have more awareness so we can prevent um, more abuse happening than, than is necessary. And we have to get honest and real around our families and around our children. We have to be able to hear real things without, you know, freaking out so that they're not scared to tell us or worried about our emotions. We really have to learn how to be tempered in our responses and we have to be able to see what we see and not second guess ourselves we have to trust that intuition you know the heart centered and the gut you know that ooh something's off there's both those parts of of human beings that we are out of touch with and we got to get back in touch and trust that they are telling us the truth so recognizing the signs of grooming is such an important piece in preventing and hopefully bringing awareness to childhood sexual abuse. I just can't overstate it enough. Parents, 
neighbors, church leaders, teachers, anyone out there who is in the lives of children, you can make a difference in one or even many children's lives if you will notice and trust your gut. If something feels off, it probably is. So if you are concerned at all, please speak up. If something does not seem right, please speak up. Together we can end childhood sexual abuse if we know what to look for. Everyone here at the Jan Broberg Show and at our foundation, we believe people. We hear and support all survivors. So if you would like to share your story of grooming or manipulation, please contact my team at jan at janbroberg.org and your story will remain anonymous and will be shared as part of our 365 days of grooming and manipulation. Thank you so much for listening. Hope this has been helpful and I will see you on the other side. Thanks. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you for sharing this journey with me today. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review the show. This really helps us spread the word. And if you know someone who would benefit from listening to our show, please do me a favor and share one of our episodes with them. I want every survivor to know that they are not alone and that there is help available. Links to my website, our foundation, the new book, our online community, Thrivivors, and newsletter can be found in the show notes. All of my contact info is there as well. This year, my number one focus is on sharing our stories. This is so important because it's the launching pad to our healing journey, and it inspires the survivor who is still suffering in silence. I don't want anyone to suffer alone anymore. So please reach out. I want to hear from you. Until next time, my friends, this is Mama Jan signing off, over and out on two.